With our time we have left, we're going to explore a little bit the, the whole idea of joy, the importance of joy. So why don't you watch a video and see if we can follow suit with this type of joy. I will never forget that cup of coffee. Well, a couple years ago, I was traveling when my schedule worked out on Christmas Eve. I thought the airport was gonna be a zoo, so I got there a couple hours early. It wasn't, it wasn't crowded at all, so for me, that means coffee. So I get, I get down into my terminal, Terminal D, and I see the green sign, and when I travel these days, I always wear earbuds, you know, so I'm, I'm rocking out to Coldplay, and I see the sign, I get in line, and there's one woman in front of me, and she's having a very animated conversation with the barista. She's kind of waving her arms, and they're both smiling and laughing, so I wasn't in a rush, but out of curiosity, it popped out my earbuds, and sure enough, you know, they're going on about their holidays and their plans and the kids and presents, and she starts to move down the line. So it's my turn to order. And I was greeted with this very warm and sincere welcome. This woman said to me, Hi, my name's Lily. What's your name? I said, I'm Ryan. She said, Ryan, what can I make for you today? I said, well, I, I want a grande pumpkin spice latte. She said, you want whipped cream on that, don't you? I said, yeah, yeah, I want the whipped cream. She said, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. She said, I'm gonna make it extra hot, load it up with whipped cream, sprinkle a little nutmeg on top. That's how I like it, you're gonna love it. I said, sounds great. She said, where are you going? I said, Cleveland. She said, are you going back to Cleveland to spend the holiday with your family? I said, yes. Now at this point, I start looking around for the camera, right? I mean, I'm trying to get a latte. So I move down the line. And the conversation continues, and she's funny. She's asking me questions about my family and our holiday traditions. She's laughing, and I'm laughing. And she hands me my drink and says to me, Ryan, have a safe trip back to Cleveland. Go create some extraordinary memories with your family. When you come back through the Minneapolis airport, I want you to stop here and tell me all about it. Here's <laughs> that. I get my drink, I start walking away, and I stop and I look back at this woman, and I think to myself, you know, it's, it's Christmas Eve. Most people would rather be anywhere else in the world than serving coffee in an airport. Not her. It was like she was meant to be there. And I, so I couldn't help myself, I had to go back. So I did, I walked back and I said, excuse me, Lily. And you know, she jumps around, Ryan, is everything okay with the latte? I said, no, I said, the latte is perfect. I just had to come back and ask you, what, what is your secret to making such meaningful connections over serving coffee? Well, she, she corrected me, she said, Ryan, I'm not serving coffee. I said, okay, what are you doing? She had thought about this. She thought about this. What she told me was, I'm pouring happiness into people's lives. I said, you're pouring what? Like, what is pouring happiness? And her definition of pouring happiness. She wants to be happy in her life. She wants to be around happy people. She cares about her customers. She wants them to come back. So she chooses, even on Christmas Eve, to smile, to have fun, to help people, to just be happy. Instead of just focusing on how to be successful, focus on how to be helpful. 
The other thing she understands and masters straight away is the very specific and intentional decision around how she chooses to show up, even on Christmas Eve. You know this, a lot of things happen in work and in our lives that are beyond our sphere of influence or control. She doesn't control the weather in Minneapolis, trust me, I live there. All she gets to own is how she chooses to respond to those things. Decide how you show up. You know, it's interesting, when I, when I met Lily, and she would have had no way of knowing this, but I, uh, I was pretty heavy in the heart and had a lot of, on my mind. And my parents, both retired school teachers, married 45 years. About three months before that holiday, I got a call from mom. We got some really tough medical news about dad. Uh, it was a terminal diagnosis, and we knew we probably weren't gonna have a lot of time. So I was sitting in that airport on Christmas Eve, not in the best place in the world. I will never forget that cup of coffee. When you decide to show up consistently as the best version of who you are, it gives you your best opportunity to meet people where they are. And you never know when someone needs you to be your best. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Great motivational speaker, by the way, that fellow. But isn't that great? What she imparted to him was so powerful, and it brought joy to his life. There's an article written by uh, Carolyn Gregor, How Happiness Became a Cultural Obsession. The story, she tells a short story, rain was pouring down in New York City as Gretchen Rubin hopped on the city bus and settled for a long ride. Taking the opportunity to enjoy the moment of reflection, Reuben pondered, what do I want from life anyway? Of course, she decided she wanted to be happy. So she entered into a conversation with her colleagues on how they and together they could be more happy. Today's happiness is ever present in our culture, conversations, and often at the forefront of our minds. Advice on how to be happy is everywhere. A Google search of happiness yields 75 million results. Nearly 40,000 books on or related to the topic are available for purchase on Amazon.com. This is nothing new. This is nothing new to our age. In ancient days, it was a time-honored pursuit. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that happiness was a byproduct of a life of virtue. Others of his day thought that happiness is found through unbridled freedom of expression. Sounds like today. Larry Crabb says, to feeling better in our world today has become more important to us than finding God. Rather than thinking in terms of living virtuous or finding God, we have come to associate happiness more with avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure, with personal gratification or sensory pleasures. The great Catholic theologian and many other things he was, Blaise Pascal says, there are three kinds of people. Those who have sought God and found him, and these are reasonable and happy people. Those who seek God and have not found him, these are reasonable but unhappy. And those who neither seek God nor find him, these are unreasonable, unhappy people. Is that assessment correct? Is his assessment of human reality correct? I want to bring the topic of joy to a more solid foundation. What is the biblical understanding of joy? Joy and happiness are often in the Bible synonymous. Randy Alcorn states, depicting joy in contrast to happiness has obscured the true meaning of both words, and often they're interchanged. 
But there is some nuanced distinctions between joy and happiness. For in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see that the kind of happiness that many people pursue, he calls fleeting. That kind of happiness will not ultimately satisfy. In contrast to an inner joy that we see in the sacred word that's enduring. How can James, the brother of Jesus, say, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials? For the testing of your faith produces endurance, and when endurance has its perfect result, you'll be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So there is a nuanced difference. Elkhorn goes on to say, just like the video we saw, joyful people are typically glad and cheerful. They smile and they laugh a lot. To put it plainly, they're happy. There's a great example in the Old Testament of a group of people who lived in community and experienced great joy. There's a community who was saddled with a significant project to rebuild the gates and walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. They experienced unbelievable joy, the text says. When they came together as God's people, centered on God, undertaking a significant project, they experienced exuberant joy. They also experienced great joy when they were thankful and when they remembered all the wonderful things that God had done in their lives. There's a strong connection between thankfulness and joy. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now that could be either religious, in the religious Jewish context, or a lifestyle. But of righteousness, peace, and joy in this one element in the Holy Spirit. That's the critical element, the joy in the Holy Spirit. My personal experience in life is when I'm truly worshiping God, I'm overwhelmingly thankful for what he's done in my life. I seek to be obedient to his will. And there's a sensitivity that I have that flows from that to the Holy Spirit. I experience an inner sense of overwhelming joy. Now, I wish I had that all the time. But I must confess, it isn't all the time. But sometimes there's a sweet spot when things all come together in our lives. And the Spirit of God does some magnificent things that we can experience the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy is not something we produce, folks. We can't produce it. It comes from an engaging relationship with Christ via the Holy Spirit. Folks, we need more than anything else joy in our world, don't we? We need people to experience great joy. How then does the coming of Messiah bring joy to the ancient world and our world today? There's a wonderful reading that Nancy read, the birth narrative. There's two birth narratives, one in Matthew, one in Luke. You know historically that at the time there was a census that was taken by the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperors were great for census. They get more taxes and more, and more control. And so there was a census while Canarius was governor. There's historians who study this and say that it can't be. The timeline doesn't fit with Canarius. It doesn't fit. But in the text it says the first time. Canarius was governor of Syria two times. And the, the scripture substantiates the historical fact. And he describes a historical occasion where, where Joseph went down to the city of David. There's two cities of David. You have Bethlehem and you have Jerusalem. And this historic occasion, he has to go because he is from the, the lineage of David. And he has to go to David's city to register in the census. And when this takes place, there's a most miraculous, unexpected child, expected in the Old Testament, but unexpected for the people of the day. The child is born, this unexpected child. And as the birth of Jesus is recorded for us, the narrative takes the most unusual twist and turn. 
For it turns his attention to shepherds in the field. Shepherds in the field and the birth of this magnificent child. Shepherds were the most despicable in the minds of the people. They were the outcasts. They couldn't even go to the temple and worship. They were the lowliest of the low. And what's beautiful in the narrative, he comes first to the shepherds and he gives his message to them. That's magnificent. The lowliest of low. The angel of the Lord appears to them. They're terrified. Angelic visitor that was showed his majesty and they were terrified. You can only imagine. And in the ancient words all throughout the Bible, it says, the angel says, do not be afraid. All times there's angelic visitations. It's often accompanied by the phrase of do not be afraid. Now it takes just two minutes to explain a reality that we want to just dismiss in a naturalistic world. There are angels, and there are supernatural beings, and there is a supernatural world. We see it from the very beginning when the conflict that's going to take place between the, the seed of the woman, this woman of the child that would come, and Satan himself in Genesis chapter 3. And this is going to be an ongoing struggle that's going to take place, not only in human reality, but in a deeply spiritual reality. In the king's account in the time of Elisha, the great prophet, there was a time where his servant was overwhelmed with fear because there was a power that had surrounded the whole group of the nation, the people that were gathered, and he was scared to death. And Elisha said, take off the, take off the eyes, open your eyes. And supernaturally he opened his eyes to see that surrounding his people was all kinds of angelic warriors that were surrounding God's people. Daniel has an experience at the end of his book He's prayed diligently that God would come and deliver a message to him. And it was delayed and delayed. It was delayed for two weeks. It was delayed because the, the demonic power of the Persian king, demonic power, was resisting for two weeks. And Gabriel, the messenger angel, had to wait till Michael, the warring angel, came and broke through so that he could bring the message to Daniel. And of course, Jesus has an experience of the supernatural world with Satan himself. Revelation chapter 12 is a, is a, is a power-packed passage where, where Satan tried to destroy the child, but he, he failed in destroying the child, and he, and he turns his attention with vengeance against those that follow after the child. In Ephesians chapter 6 says, We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces that exist in the world. There is another reality besides the natural reality. And he wants to prepare us for that in the words given to us in Ephesians 6. And so there was an angel. It's not some mythology. There was an angel that came and said, I bring you good news of great joy. For today in the town of David is a Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. These shepherds, you can only imagine, the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, they were the first to hear the good news. This is the fulfillment of the most important ancient story in human history. Any Christian should be able to recite the storyline starting in the beginning all the way through. The promises given to Abraham, the promises given to David, the promises that were given to the prophets in the New Covenant fulfilled ultimately in the coming of the special child, the Messiah. Folks, it's important to note also in the Gospel of Matthew that it shows the appearance of a magi. The magi most likely were the elite of the elite. The elite of the elite came on another occasion and they came and they bowed their knee in worship of the Christ child. Folks, Christ comes for all people. 
the lowliest of low to the highest of the high. He doesn't make distinctions in those folks. His kingdom gives the opportunity and opens the door for all people to come to him. What does this bring such joy to us in centuries later? For all time, we deeply, folks, need a Savior. But what is he saving us from? Savior means one who saves somebody from something. You know, the power of the gospel is this. What the gospel saves us from is ourselves. The good news of Christ, the most primary purpose of the good news of Christ is to save us from ourselves. Because in ourselves, we think somehow that we, in our self-righteousness or in our, our good behavior or inherent goodness, that somehow we can win favor with God. And the beauty of the gospel says to us, you can't. There is no way you must recognize that you are utterly spiritually broken and you thrust yourself on the powerful gospel, the good news of the, the mercy and grace of Christ. He steps in your behalf to reconnect you with Christ and takes your sin and your shame. He saves us ultimately from ourselves. But the Savior saves us from a few other things. Let me just illustrate them for you. The Savior saves us from, from hostility. Before we come to faith in Christ, before we enter into the family, we have a relationship of hostility towards God, clearly identified in the writings of the great Apostle Paul. That doesn't mean that God desires and loves us. Of course he loves all people. But the relationship is breached because of hostility towards God. And God overturns his hostility and he saves us and, he, and we experience unbelievable acceptance. Unbelievable acceptance. Folks, some of you, we need to hear this over and over again. If you've been justified by faith, which realizes that we can't do it, it's by God through his faith. You have peace with God. The words of the Apostle Paul. You have peace with God and you will always, because you are in the family now. You say, my relationship with God is so rocky. That doesn't negate the peace that you have with God. You are no longer at war with God. You are in the family. He goes on to say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that, folks? It changes our lives when we understand that. We all of a sudden move into the family of God with powerful acceptance. He moves us from death also to life, folks. People are walking all around us every day that we see. Our people are walking dead. They might be spiritual, as we talk about in our society, spiritual people. But when it comes to the relationship with God, they are spiritually disconnected, and therefore they are dead, spiritually dead. And the only one that imparts genuine life to us in a spiritual sense is Christ, through the power of his Spirit. And he moves us from death to genuinely living life. He moves us from sinfulness Sinful state, he moves us from a sinful state to people who have experienced the freshness of forgiveness. If there's anything that we need in our culture, in our world today, it's the power of forgiveness. And you can wake up every day, of the, every day in the morning and you can say before God, I have been forgiven because of what Christ has done for me. It makes all the difference in the world. Jesus talks about us being lost. Even the religious leaders and all the people of his day, these, these deeply looking spiritual people were spiritually lost. And the purpose Christ came into the world was to seek and save lost people. And when we are found, it is powerful. I can remember my brother and I went fishing one time. We, the boat motor stopped and it was a windy day and it blew us all the way across the lake. 
I wanted to stay in the boat until somebody comes and find us. My brother has a wonderful idea. Let's go. Let's, let's trump across. This is a huge lake. Let's walk. We can get back. So we start walking, and soon, we're not very long, we're lost. We're deeply lost. He's a year and three quarters older than me, and he's quite a bit faster than I am. He started running in panic. And I'm trying to keep up with him. I was scared to death to be lost. By God's grace, we found a road, and we made our way back. Spiritually, we are found now by God. He draws us near to himself. Jesus talks about spiritual blindness. We don't perceive things as we ought to see when we're not in tune with Christ. We don't know him. There's a spiritual blindness, but the eyes open up. We start seeing as Jesus, the people encountered Jesus, all of a sudden they saw a new reality. And finally, there's an old life, the old patterns of that we used to live before we came to Christ, and now it's a new life. We spend the rest of our life growing into trying to experience this new reality that we have in Christ. He came with a purpose. He came in that morning when he was born with a purpose to be the Savior of the world. Knowing Christ personally brings great joy, folks. Think about it this week, the changes that the Savior is bringing in your life. Take a look back in the recent past. Go farther back. Sometimes it's hard to see where we're at when we're just looking by day by day, but look what he has done for you. Think back when you first experienced the love and grace of God through Christ Jesus. Some experiences are much more dramatic than others. But I experienced a sense of inner peace and inner joy. There was a friend here at church who goes to church here that wasn't able to make it this morning, and he said, I have, I have something I want you to read, Mark, about joy, my idea of joy, and it's magnificent. Joy is a settled assurance that God is at con in control of our lives. And the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. Ultimately, everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. Boy, he's captured it. Joy is a settled assurance that God is in control of our lives. Sometimes we don't always feel his control in our life. But still, the reality is God is superintending our lives. Quiet confidence that ultimately, the ultimate Everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. What a formula for joy. Again, Romans 14 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the game changer for you and me as followers of Christ is the Holy Spirit, recorded and described for us in Romans chapter 8. That comes when we personally know the living Christ. Amen.